But in the bearing of her son, Muriel was consumed in spirit and body. And after his birth, she yearned for release from the labors of living. Greetings and welcome back to another episode of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. Today is a special episode because it marks the triumphant return of my wonderful co-host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Muriel, wife of Finway, who perished after giving birth to a spirit of fire fan or... But fortunately, Jen oh. did not perish in the <laughs> birthing of her own spirit of fire, thankfully. I did not ber- <laughs> perish in childbirth. I'm so happy to be back. And it is a perfect time to return to this podcast because we have so much to talk about. So many exciting things are happening right now, including but not limited to that brand new teaser trailer that we just mm-hmm. got. And we're getting another one. On the 14th, we're getting an actual trailer. It's coming out like gunshots, just like boom, boom, boom. It really is. So Michael, my co-host, a.k.a. Gil Galad, or Gil Galad, or Gil Galad. I I like Papa Gilly. Just give me Papa Gilly. Papa G. (laughs) I hear it pronounced all kinds of ways. It is Gil Galad is technically correct, but I always said Gil Galad. So in my head, it's still Gil Galad, and it always will be Gil Galad. And since I am Gil Galad today... That's the official pronunciation. I have declared it. He has spoken. Yes. Well, we are here to talk about the teaser trailer, and I am really excited about this. We, even though it's so short, I mean, it's, it's what, another Michael. Like it's a, one minute. Yeah, a minute. Yeah, it's one minute. The last one was a minute. A minute the long. next one is a minute. And uh, Jen, I'll, I'll tell you, I've seen the next one. Actually, I have secretly seen the what? next one. <laughs> oh yeah, it was. Uh, it was briefly leaked. Um, not deliberately, not, you know, Amazon did not mean to leak it, but it was leaked like the, the next day, like the day after, maybe two days after this first one was leaked. And, um, if you jumped on to the wondering.net's discord server, you could, you could watch it. And it was a Spanish language version, but, uh, I, I saw it and then it was very quickly taken down. No traces left anywhere. Um, I may or may not still have a copy somewhere that, uh, I will let you look at, but, uh, I, I can neither confirm nor deny that that is the case. What? <laughs> I can't believe it. Well, we're going to have to talk about that later. I mean, I feel like you're holding out on me, but we'll devote a whole, oh, yeah. don't worry, folks. That'll be we'll next devote time. a whole That'll episode to one, it yeah. when it comes out. Well, I think, Michael, we should kick this conversation off. We'll just dive right yeah, in. Yeah, and we'll just mark this as spoiler alert. We are getting into spoiler territory for The Rings of Power. We're going to break this uh, little teaser down. There's some really good new information. We're not going to exhaustively go into every corner and every leaf of every frame. Um, There are plenty of places that you will see people talk about that and do that online. And we encourage you to go look at them, but we're going to take a little bit more of a high level view. Uh, You know, we'll focus on some tidbits that are particularly interesting to us. uh, Things that really reveal new information about the show. Um, But we also want to get into just sort of high level thematic content. So the first thing I wanted to mention Jen, that I noticed, uh, and people don't talk about this with, with teasers or trailers very much, but marketing materials have their own narrative, right? Teasers have their own narrative. Trailers have their own narrative. There's a story being told or hinted at in, the, uh, in a trailer, and not just the actual narrative story of the, of the movie, but they're kind of telegraphing, well, what is the theme that this, the broader theme that this story is going to be trying to convey? And the first thing I noticed uh, when watching this teaser was that, I mean, clearly, Meteor Man has been a focal point of both teasers we've gotten so far. 
big time surprising yeah. surprising and he his presence is extra heavy in this one um the entire teaser basically you have the meteor going across the sky and it cuts shot to shot character to character they're all looking up at the sky now they're not all looking up at the meteor although many of them are but they're all looking up at something there is a there there's an element here of you know looking up gazing skywards which i thought was very interesting there are references to um, sort of celestial things so we see uh, lenny henry's character the harford character saying and this is the only dialogue in the entire teaser the skies are strange or he says it kind of a, the skies are great strange i don't know like a pirates of the caribbean pirate accent <laughs> or whatever it is but uh that's the only dialogue the skies are strange and then it just cuts to everybody sort of looking up and i think and i'm interested to hear your take on what that might mean if it's just you know saying hey meteor man is going to be important or if there's something else i kind of feel like that feels very tolkienian to me um there are a lot of references to the heavens meaning the stars, the moon, the sun, and they have a special relevance uh, symbolically uh, and narratively in Tolkien's works throughout the Silmarillion. And so to have the characters and perhaps the perhaps Meteor Man coming through the heavens, that's kind of like the inciting incident for a lot of what goes on later in the season. For that to be the inciting incident, something you know, going through the sky and people looking up and the skies are different, you know, the stars are different. That seems very, feels very Tolkienian to me for that to be the marker of a change in the world, a change in the sky being, mm. meaning a change in the world. So that's kind of something that yeah. I, I liked uh, from a 10,000 foot view, just thematically what was going on here. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of chatter about this because people were, people were a little perturbed that he was such a focal point, that Meteor Man was such a focal point because we have believed up until now that he's sort of going to be a fringe storyline, right? Like the, the Harfoots and Meteor Man will be uh, on the fringes, but the folk, but the main focus of the plot is going to be world building and Galadriel and establishing these characters, etc. Um, and people are upset because Meteor Man is, it may be, we just don't know anything about him. He could be totally invented we're not we're not sure if it's canon um and so i know a lot of people were perturbed that he might be a larger part of the plot but i think as you said i don't know that this trailer necessarily indicates that it could be misleading it could be that this is sort of just a broader thematic take as you said and also i was thinking about who Meteor Man is, you know, people speculate, is it Sauron? Is it a blue wizard? I think at this point, I have felt pretty strongly, you convinced me that it is a blue wizard, in which case, um, that relationship between wizard and hobbit thematically is so important in the lore, even if it's not important to this series or the the, the bigger storyline in just this particular series, the Amazon Prime series, it is really foundational to the whole story of the hobbit and, um, and the Lord of the Rings, and it's something people really connect with. Um, and so the start of that relationship uh, is is very significant, and perhaps that is why, you know, they've included right. it. Because the audience would be thrilled by, will be thrilled by that relationship, just that nod to the other works, even though this one won't be totally centered on it. Yeah. I, Does that make oh, sense? Oh, 100%. And I, I think that it's actually for that very reason that some people dislike the inclusion because they feel like it is just designed to um, create sort of a bit of nostalgia to rope in the the fans of the Peter Jackson films. They're like, well, 
we're doing Middle Earth, so we have to have a Hobbit and we have to have wizards. And that's making like a lot of the other fans go, no, you don't. You know, we have the Silmarillion. It's beautiful as it is. You don't have to jam Hobbits and wizards in there to, to make it Tolkien because he didn't do that all the time. He, he did it in Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And that's great. But that's not what the Second Age is about. Um, so that perturbs some people. And I'm not going to tell those people they're wrong uh, or anything like that. It just doesn't make me mad either way. Like I've kind of gotten used to the idea. Okay, I've you know I've expressed my my uh, trepidation about the inclusion of hobbits, and we've talked at length about that. I don't want to rehash it, but if there are hobbits in there, it it could work great, and if there are wizards in there, it could work great, and if you're gonna have them both in there, I see no reason not to have them in there together. And it actually kind of in a, in a weird way it isol- <laughs> isolates the the intrusion of new material. So to the extent you feel like jamming a blue wizard in the second age is, is new material, not entirely consistent with the lore, even though, as we've talked about, you know, there are versions of in the unfinished tales there are versions of the Astari where the blue wizards come in in the second age. But if you feel like, all right, we don't need to have a wizard in here and they're jamming it in. And if you feel like we don't need to have hobbits in here and they're jamming it in, well, you know what? Good news for you. They're being jammed in into the same place and relegated to the same corner and same storyline of the show. So there's only, you know, one storyline you're going to hate and maybe you can just choose to ignore it and enjoy the rest. Yeah, it's sort of like, honestly, the Game of Thrones reference that I have is sort of the White Walkers. I, I could take them or leave them. Well, I loved them and I loved them and I loved them. And then the show ended and I was like, where did that go? What was the point of the White Walkers? Like if it felt like <laughs> there was no payoff, you know. Um, and so I'm still waiting for the books to explain to me why the White Walkers were so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's my only parallel. But uh, moving on, I feel like you and I, before we started the episode, both really wanted to discuss something the music can we move to the music we can move to the music i just want to say one last thing about the 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 theme and the tone everybody looking up to me that signals an element of hope you know the hopefulness of tolkien Mm -hmm. it's a physical representation you know looking up gazing skyward is oftentimes a physical representation of hope and to the extent that that's what they're going for i love that now that being said (laughs) i think a lot of the faces on on the characters as they're looking up it's not a hopeful gaze it's like a oh what's that in the sky type of gaze it's a little ominous. <laughs> yeah there's an yeah, ominousness the, to it yeah f- it it feels very ominous to yeah me. yeah so maybe i'm all wet on that one um you know i'm finding a comparison <laughs> where there shouldn't be one but but star you said stars skies mm-hmm. all of that is is always very prevalent in in tolkien you know people looking to the scars even the map the cool map that we get that looks like hieroglyphics um is so interesting and uh, them looking for answers in the skies or perhaps trying to gauge what is, what is happening. Is there a darkness coming Uh, where I'm referring to the part where the Hobbit has the, the map that we see. Right. Um, So uh, yeah, all of that, as you said, feels very Tolkienian. But yes, let's go, let's go ahead and start talking about the music. We've now had three teasers. Well, actually let's start just by listening to the music.
Michael. Give it to me. Give me, give me that take. It's not even over yet. It's not even <laughs> over yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like I'm bursting at the seams. I'm not a fan. I mean, here's that the is thing. a take. Oh, modern. that is a take. It's too. It's too modern for me. And here's the thing. Not always. This could or could not be the what we're gonna get from the series. A lot of the times, the music that they use in the trailers is not the same music from the series. It's, you know, it's specifically only, it's curated for the trailer. So this this very well may not be um, music from the series, but it was a very modern, I was like, what, what's going on here with the clock ticking sound, tick, 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 and like very cymbals heavy, the drums. I mean, it, it served, it served the purpose to amp you up. I mean, I felt very excited by it, but I didn't like it for series music. Hmm. Um, it, 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 yeah, just, it sounds really, really modern to me. It sounds very action movie to Mm me. Um, and just very, there was a harshness to it. Uh, I don't know what the instrumentation, I mean, you hear the strings in the background, but there's something, there's a lot of effects on the instrumentation that I didn't love. Um, what, what's your take? Well, I, um, I don't exactly share your opinion, but. Uh, maybe a milder form of it. Uh, I think that we're all going to be suffering from um, Howard Shore-itis, where we just wish we were listening to Howard Shore's score from The Lord of the Rings all the time because it is one of the greatest scores of all time. And it is, you know, been yes. tattooed on my heart <laughs> ever since, you know, 2000. Trademark Howard Shore-itis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Trademark Michael Rowland. Um and, you know, Howard Shore is supposedly involved. Him and Bear McCreary are, yes. are jointly doing the score. So... I think we we talked a little bit about that, that we didn't know how that type of collaboration would function exactly. Um, You know, two cooks in the kitchen. I don't know how that works. But certainly the music that we've gotten in this teaser, the prior teaser and the title reveal, none of it sounds like Howard Short to me whatsoever. Um, And so it's I don't know if this is, you know, Bear McCreary music or maybe you're right. So let's but let's take that off the table. The idea that this music is not series music um that very well could be the case and that the score will be completely something different but let's just assume for the sake of discussion purposes that this music is what we're going to get in the show or or akin to it you know it's related to it it's it's composed by bear mercury and howard shore for the teaser and that there will be some sort of relationship between what we're listening to here and the show um I, i i notice you know comparing it to howard shore howard shore is very very melodic there are clear melodic themes with like a single melodic line that could be played by one instrument and yes. and you would recognize the theme. Okay. Yes. Everything I've heard so far, and also a lot of what I've heard from Bear, Bear McCreary's other stuff, not that I'm a scholar on his work, but a lot of his other stuff is not that way. Like there are melodies. You can find melodies in the soundtracks, but um, he does a lot of like, uh, you know, there's just chord work where there's a lot of uh, soundscapes, I would call them, more than like songs or lyrical melodies. And so he'll, they'll be changing chords and maybe some melodic lines underneath, but that's not what's in the foreground. Howard Shore, the melodies in the foreground with Bear McCreary, the melodies are somewhere, but that's not where the, the emphasis is. The emphasis is on sort of the um, chordal progressions and things like that. And that's kind of what I hear with this music. You know, there's kind of a, as you said, like a modern actiony, dramatic, um, familiar, chordal uh, thing going on and there's a lot of cool compositional stuff you know uh, in terms of the instrumentation but there's no melody really 
to speak it's, of. The, the musicality is lacking for me. It really is. I mean, the reason that we're so attached to those Howard Shore soundtracks is because they are evocative in a way that I do not think that this this rivals whatsoever. Uh-huh. I mean, creating a backdrop to a scene is different than creating a memorable emotional experience, uh-huh. which is what Howard Shore did. And I desperately want that for this series. I want it to be that. And maybe that's something I just have to let go of. But I'm not there yet. Yeah, I'm, yeah, still, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to hold out the hope. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we have a lot more to get to. But I'm still going to hold on to the hope that we're going to get some beautiful melodic masterpieces out of this show. Yeah. And I so and here's where I would differ from you. Uh, you know, I've just sort of laid out what I think the distinctions are between Howard Shore's style and Bear McCurry's style, or at least the style of the music that we've gotten in these teasers and, and how they're not as thematic and melodic, but I don't dislike it. I don't hate it. Like I, th- I think it is, I think it is powerful what we're listening to. I don't have share your issue with modern music, um, you know, mixing modern music with period. I have shows. a real bee in my bonnet about it, <laughs> Michael. Yeah. Um, I get it. Like I'm not, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. It just doesn't bother me as much. Like I love the show Peaky Blinders, and they use electric guitars, and it's you know set in uh, early 1900s um, Great Britain, and but it's a very very modern like uh, kind of rock and rock and roll country type of music that they're mixing with it. And at first it was a little jarring for me because I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. They're they're doing a thing and I'm not sure I get it. But the show was so good and then the music became part of that and it was, it is good music. So I kind of got over it and then it ended up being a good thing. And so um, you like, I don't need my music to be performed on only instruments that would have existed during the period that the show is set, you know, I don't need, I, I don't need to be formed I by do, an, I do need an orchestra that. of I'm instruments sorry, of, it. you know, harps, because apparently those are the only instruments that are ever referenced in middle earth, the harps, you know, I don't, I don't need that. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, I get it. I get it. I'm not saying you're wrong, but, um, I, I'm open to something with, you know, bass. Although I will say the end of the, the, the music, the end of this teaser there's this like low bass thing that was like, oh, this is House of Cards. This is straight out of House of Cards. <laughs> it's like the exact same. Huh. Um, oh, I'm the ending of the theme of House of Cards. It's like identical. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't hate it, and I certainly it wouldn't ruin the show for me. But I def, I don't love it, and uh, I guess it remains to be seen. I, I think that to to give you a, a glimmer of hope, because these teasers are just teasers. And there's no, we don't have dialogue, we don't have scenes, we don't have plot. There's nothing really. They're not, they wouldn't introduce a theme. Like if they created a theme for the Harfoots, if they created a theme for Galadriel, they're not going to give us that in this teaser. Um, They're not going to waste it on the teaser. They're going to give us sort of generic, epic music, which is what this is. It's kind of like, it's epic music, but that's kind of generic and there's no specific themes. So I would still bet that we're going to get some Howard Shore themes, like very melodic themes in the series. We're just not going to see them in the teasers, maybe not even in any trailer before the show drops. Sure. Yeah, that I agree. That is my hope. But let's get to some, some of our favorite scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to it. Um, so let's just start at the beginning. That's a very good place to start. All right. So the very opening shot, and we're not going to go shot by shot, but let's just start at the beginning. This is something a little bit new. We get a shot of what looks like the watchtower. It's the same watchtower that we saw in close-up in a, the previous teaser with Arendir at the top. 
except now the watchtower is farther in the distance and it's expanded the the view a little bit so now we see there's a bridge that comes next to the watchtower um, and we we actually see if you really zoom in there's two people walking along the bridge but i think this is just interesting to the extent that People are mining these shots for details of where this could be set, where this could be. We have a little bit more information here. There's this watchtower, there's a bridge, there's a river going under the bridge. The bridge is, you know, over a body of water. So we had none of that information before. That being said, I still have no freaking idea where, where this is or where it could be. We know that it's Arendir at the top of this tower. And so if he's hanging out in Tir Harad with his girlfriend Bronwyn, okay, that's kind of in the south, the southern area. Uh, so the sort of southeasterly area of Middle Earth. Um, that's kind of interesting. There's a river. Maybe this river leads to the sea. So maybe, the, you know, where she lives, where Tirhrad is, is kind of close to a port city. That would make sense for a lot of reasons because, you know, one of the big plot lines is the Numenorians come and harass. They, they create settlements and kingdoms at the southern port cities. You know, Umbar was a port city established by the evil Numenorians. And, you know, they use those established settlements to harass and subjugate the people in that area. So we could see this location, this area, this body of water being used for various military actions by the Numenorians in future, future seasons. I'm not even talking about season one. I think this is like way down the road. And these people are going to be between a rock and a hard place, you know, with the Numenorians coming in from the sea. And then Sauron, of course, is in the east in Mordor, which is on the other side. Uh, So they would be sort of between the hammer and the anvil. And I, I think we've talked about this before, that I think the peoples of Harad, I hope there are really interesting plot lines to play out there because they're the ones who are exposed to Sauron's manipulation, right? Because the Haradrim, mm-hmm. the Easterlings, eventually fall under his sway. Um, they end up serving right. him. And I think part of why they start serving him is because the Numenorians eventually become evil and they're oppressors. So I think, but then Sauron's also going to, so he's going to come in and say, hey, these Numenorians are subjugating you. Let me give you the power to fight back. Let me help you. And that's how he will get them under his influence and, and get them to serve him. So anyway, that's like a bit far afield from just this image. But I think the fact that that we are potentially looking at a location that we will see many times in the future. I'm really only interested in learning about how the Haradrim um, domesticate the Oliphants. Yeah. Really, <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. No, good um, point. No, just kidding. Um, yeah, I think that shot is beautiful. I don't, again, I've heard a lot of wild speculation about it, and it's really mining for, it. it's just, we don't know. But I do. I will say I love the light in the shot. I love the camera angles. The whole, okay, every shot for me, there's a fantasy, fantastical element, a dramatic element to it, and the use of light um, and the use of color that I love. I know some people are, you know, have their criticisms of that. I personally love it. Um, it's fantasy. It's fantasy for me. And it hits all the right notes for me. And really the, these, I don't think anybody has really complained about these wide scale, um, or wide lens nature shots, like these beautiful vistas. Uh, I mean, these are just gorgeous. And this, this is New Zealand. So this is middle earth. This is the middle earth we know and love. So, um, you know, the images of the mountains in the background, the lighting is very, very crisp. So I, I agree with you. I think it this still feels very much like Middle Earth to me. Shall we move on to the next? So here we've got, and we'll just talk about this very briefly. There's a picture of, uh, this is Lenny Henry's hand on a piece of parchment with some hieroglyphs on it. And we've seen similar parchment, similar hieroglyphs being held by the Harfoots and other 
other shots. And what's notable about this, and the only thing that I, th- I think is worth raising is, so I can't read these hieroglyphs because they're made up, but uh, <laughs> I mean, and I never learned the, uh, the language, like the goblin language from the Father Christmas letters, which these hieroglyphs look almost exactly like that. <laughs> I think that's where they pulled them from. Um, but uh, so I can't read this, but it does look like there are stars. I think we're looking at sort of a primitive map of a constellation, map of the skies. And, you know, some support for that conclusion is the fact that right before this, we see, or it was right after this, Lenny, Lenny Henry says, the skies are strange. So clearly he is concerned with the skies. I think he's looking at a map here of constellations. I, I don't, okay, so this is going to be this far afield speculation that we said we'd avoid, but here goes. We know that at the end of the first age, Arendil, huge player, huge part of why the, um, the goodies were able to overcome the baddies at the end of the first age. Um, and his uh, reward slash punishment is that he has to forever patrol the skies in his uh, winged vessel, Vingalot. And he's basically, you know, with the Silmaril on his brow, so he's now a star. The star of Arendil is literally Arendil patrolling the skies in his ship. Um, and that is a symbol of hope for um, all the people of Middle-earth. And I think if I recall correctly, when the Numenorians are gifted the island of Numenor, or when the when the Adain are gifted the island of Numenor, they follow the star of Arendil, and that sort of like guides them to Numenor. So anyway, the the appearance of the star of Arendil is very very important at the end of the first age into the second age, very important symbolically and actually uh, to the narrative. I don't know that they're going to do anything. Like I, I hope they're not. It's not the appearance of the star of Arendil that they're referencing here. Because that just would not make sense with time compression, unless they're really compressing it, like literally, like the second age is two hundred years old or going to last for a hundred years, <laughs> and and we're going to start with the appearance of the star of Arendil, and Isildur's alive for that. That like that would be just too much compression for me to stomach. But um, I think they will be playing with those ideas. Like they're, they're going to want to pull from that bag of tricks, you know, the things that Tolkien did with the Star of Arendil, and and maybe use them and re reshuffle them, reshape them for some other purpose to include them in the show. And that, that, that is what is going on here. Yeah. I mean, personally, I just like the bit of uh hobbit culture we get here. I, I mean, where did, where did this book come from? We have no context here, but I like that they're looking for answers. It would appear that they had some um, experience of, of uh, astrology, astronomy, looking at the stars i think it's cool that that it's like supposed to be ancient hobbit writings early hobbit writings um yeah i i've i've since come around to the idea of getting hobbits in this series and i'm kind of excited to see what they do with it right. so any gl- any glimpse of that is exciting to me right okay i think this is kind of the main event uh yeah, here we're looking at the th- there are a series of images and we're just going to talk about them all together uh, this is the ship, the elven ship, sailing through. We have a wide screenshot of, of the ocean. There are tons of birds flying around. and Beautiful white birds. Beautiful white birds. Can't really tell what type of birds they are. Um, there's a bright light, it seems, at the top of the image. So, like, the, the ship is sailing towards some sort of light, it appears. But the the sea is otherwise very, very dark, which makes me think that it's dark and cloudy and stormy but that there's a bright light in the, uh, like a break in the clouds um ahead of them 
So I, I don't know for certain that it's stormy because you can't see the clouds here and you can't really make out for sure. Like, we'll look at this other one that's a close-up of the elves on the ship. Um, the clouds do look kind of stormy. Take of that what you will. And then we get a close-up shot. So the other, the other one was from behind looking at the elves looking up. And then the camera flips around. We get another shot of their faces looking up. And Galadriel is in the foreground. We get these beautiful elven lamps. They're all dressed in, you know, white cotton, not pure white, but sort of an off-white cotton linen. Very simple. I would call it a cream. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Let me let me uh, consult my palette here. Um, <laughs> but so, all right, let this. Oh, and I should mention this elven ship is a beautiful swan boat. It's got a swan head Gorgeous. for a prow, reminiscent of the swan ship that we saw at the end of Return of the King when... Frodo sailed off with Bilbo and Galadriel and Elrond. So let the speculation begin. Jen, what do you think this scene is from? Well, I think we should spend the most time on this scene. Um, I don't think there's as much to other scenes here, but this is gorgeous, first of all. Let's just start by saying it's beautifully shot. Um, I, th- I have a lot of questions, and I've heard a lot of speculation. First of all, it looks like they're sailing westward. So I think I, I think I want to give credit where credit's due, but my initial reaction, and I've heard it echoed on Fellowship of Fans, um, their YouTube channel, that they may be sailing into the West. Like, are they going <laughs> into the West, to, you know, to the Forbidden Lands, to the Holy Lands? Um, I'm trying to put these in layman's terms, mm-hmm. um, but into the land, into basically the sacred territory that they're that they're banned from are yeah. they returning um to the undying lands and um is this is this when the ship will be wrecked shortly after this right the ship will be wrecked and is this when we see galadriel um on the on the stranded you know on the um the small boat with um the mysterious figure who yeah. we I, people have speculated Halbrand. that this is Halbrand, thank you, that this is just before this happens. Um, that they're trying to sail into the West, that, but they're prohibited from it for some reason, and they're shipwrecked, and that's this could be the beginning of the series, and then later we see Galadriel you know, afloat in the raft, and she's somehow rescued. Um, that's been That's been what people have speculated, because she's wearing the same outfit here as she is in the other um, trailer that we saw. So she's wearing the same clothing when Halbrand um, pulls her hair back to reveal her elven ears. Um, and so I, that's an interesting theory. Um, there's also theories that it's a flashback or could they be sailing to Numenor? Could those be Numenorian birds? There's like so many, so many questions here and um, I don't necessarily have answers i think it it, and also are they looking at the comet that's a question is the bright light the comet or is the bright light valinor Um, right i would say i I would say it's definitely not the comet i'm just gonna say that right now i mean i guess it could but when we and we're just looking at still images here but when the trailer is actually moving we see we get no sense that the light is moving the way a comet would and also the comet is like red light and this is yellow i'm just gonna say probably not the comet but uh, I, it's almost unfortunate. I almost wish that that they hadn't revealed both the shot of Galadriel being shipwrecked and this shot, because 
we can since that she's wearing the same clothes we can piece the two together and surmise that almost certainly um this shot is going to be followed by the ship foundering and her getting shipwrecked so like we can place it uh temporally in a certain time period so like i i think it's almost certain that this is not a flashback for that reason unless she wears those clothes all the t- all the time you know um but that's kind of a bummer cuz it, it this looks very first agey to me just beautiful it does feel yeah. like they're going to valinor like it does feel feel like that that this could be um like i've heard it speculated that this would be a shot from when the elves were first brought over from middle earth to valinor way back after the well uh, when, when the elves were first awakened you know when they were first brought over now technically we also know that that's not true because the noldor you know the clans that uh, constituted the Noldor and most of the other elves, they went over with Ulmo, who basically ripped some earth out of the ocean and raised up an island, and they all like walked onto the island, and he just like moved the island over to Valinor, and that's how they, that's how they were transported over. Um, but there is a description from the travels of the Tellery because the Tellery didn't go to Valinor right away. Uh, they didn't follow right away because their leader was left behind and so they wanted to wait for him and blah, blah, blah. There's all this stuff that was going on. They were unsure if they wanted to go. But after some amount of time, eventually they went. And the way that the the Tellery, the Tellerin elves went, Teleri, I keep pronouncing it wrong, was Ose, who's sort of the you know junior version of Ulmo. Ulmo is the Valar. Ose is sort of the, the, the Maiar that serves him. Ose taught them how to build ships. And so they built these beautiful swan ships and they got out some really heavy duty swans to pull them. So let me, this is just a beautiful, beautiful little segment. So let me read it. Therefore, Olmo, submitting to the will of the Valar, sent to them Ose, their friend, and he, though grieving, taught them the craft of shipbuilding. And when their ships were built, he brought them as his parting gift, many strong winged swans. Then the swans drew the white ships of the Tellery over the windless sea, and thus at last and latest they came to Amon and the shores of Eldamar. So this image, although it certainly cannot be straight from those pages, because for what we've talked about, we know it's not first age. We know the Noldor, of whom Galadriel was one, didn't go over to Valinor on ships. They went over on, on the island. They still could be like using this ex- that excuse, this the that passage as inspiration for the images here, because here we see a group of elves on this ship approaching what feels like is the Undying Lands, surrounded by beautiful white birds. Now they're not pulling the ship, but it just I feel like that passage may have played some role in inspiring mm. the images we're looking at here. Yes, it's very dramatic. I I like that theory. Maybe it's Elwing and her cohort leading. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She she sort of shapeshifts back into a bird from time to time. Comes down off Vingalot. <laughs> yeah, we. I mean, we don't know. They certainly don't look like swans, but they could be. Yeah. Little. There's no way these are swans. Like swans have long necks, and I don't see any long yeah. neck on these birds. Yeah, but it, it's certainly gorgeous and it and exciting. I think, as you said, it's almost certainly the precursor to the shipwreck. Yes. Um, why they get shipwrecked? Man, there's been wild speculation around that as well. Well, and I think you're getting into it. I don't want to step on your shoes, but I have a theory about that. But it sounds like Kay. you might be getting into it. No, I don't have an original theory. I've heard a lot of theories that I don't really want to parrot. If you have an original theory, please. Okay, I don't. I don't know if it's original. I I have I have not 
been paying attention to the interwebs as, as much about this. So um, you tell me if I'm, my mind is running in the same circles as others. But so we know at the end of the first stage, well, going back to going back to the first stage, the Noldor are exiles. They followed Feanor out of out of uh, uh, Amman against the will of the Valar. And as a result, they were punished by being banned forever from returning. Okay, so they're exiles. They're stuck in Middle Earth. But at the end of the first stage, the Valar lifted the ban as to all, all the Noldor, except for a few. Um, or at least this is in one of the versions of the Silmarillion that we get, not, not in all. But some of them, uh, the ban was not lifted, and they were not allowed to return. And of those, Galadriel was one. Um, the idea being that she was one of the leaders. So basically, the Noldor that were a little more culpable, the Valar were like, ah, you still need to do a little bit more time. And so they continued to be banned. Now, there's another version of this where the reason Galadriel didn't go back to Valinor is because she didn't want to go. It was of her own volition, and she chose not to go, which is also very interesting. But it creates a different, you know, a totally different plot avenue. But so the theory goes that they have chosen the version where the ban remains in place as to her. And that what we are seeing with this image is that Galadriel is trying to go back to Valinor. You know, maybe this is some years after the, the start of the Second Age, and she's decided, all right, I'm ready to go back. I'm ready to go back. The ban is lifted as to the Noldor, right? So I'm, I'm going to go back. Um, and that, that theory is supported by, we know that there was the other image of the elves. There was like a crowning ceremony. And we know that Gil-galad was, it was a ceremony to see off certain elves that were leaving. And it looked like Galadriel was one of them. It actually looked like Gil-galad was placing some sort of ringlet or crown on her head um, ceremonially. So uh, the theory is that some of the elves, we're seeing some of the elves leave. And that potentially Galadriel is one of them. And so this would fit into that theory because, okay, Galadriel is on the ship. She wants to go back to Valinor. But why the shipwreck? Well, because the ban was not lifted as to her. And so the dark clouds we see in these images, that's the, that is how the Valar keep her out. That, that's how they keep her from getting into Valinor. They cause a shipwreck. They cause her downfall. You know, kind of a bummer for all the elves that were with her. Maybe, they, maybe they're also banned, or maybe they, uh, maybe they were allowed through, and and Gladwell's the only one who gets left behind. But that mm. this is a scene of her coming within sight of Valinor, and then she gets you know spit out by the Valar, who won't let her back in. The ban isn't lifted, and then she gets yeah, shipwrecked, and she's close to Numenor, like you know, still close to Numenor when she's shipwrecked, and so the Numenorians scoop her up and. I don't know how Halbrand gets in that in that area, well, but that's uh, that I heard was the theory that I heard was that Halbrand is a stowaway, and that's why they were a um, stowaway, not, not allowed in because you know he he was trying to get in as well. I no way there's gonna be a human stowaway on an elf <laughs> ship. They're gonna notice. He's gonna you know be breathing so loudly. There's no <laughs> stowaway. And Maybe it's Halbrand who rescues her from the raft. He jumps onto the raft. Right. Right. Like this, this ship doesn't even have a below deck area. Where would he stow away? He's gonna hide that's, under a blanket. That's true. I mean, elven ships, while beautiful, not a lot of storage space. Does not like look like <laughs> there's a whole heck of a lot of storage space. If you're enjoying Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, you really should check out our Wheel of Time podcast, hosted by Rourke Tharmston. Rourke is a Wheel of Time expert, and each week breaks down the latest episode from Amazon's adaptation of The Wheel of Time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books. If you've already read the Wheel of Time books, this podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to the Wheel of Time universe yourself, 
then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right, Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party Wheel of Time. Hey, have you heard about our sponsor, Four Cats Boutique? So I just pulled up their website to have a look right now, and I am seeing bookmarks, earrings, uh, jewelry, art prints, um, cards. I see uh, Fantastic Four. I see Moon Knight. Wheel of Time is here. Star Wars. Lots and lots of fandoms. Lots of really gorgeous artwork. Lots of collectibles. Things to hang on your wall. Definitely a site worth checking out. And of course, Lord of the Ring things as well. So definitely check them out. That's Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's number four, Cats with a K, number four, Four Cats Boutique. Check them out. I have new respect for DW's job. Yes. Oh my gosh. All right. So... Next up, we got a shot here, a very quick shot in the teaser, and we're going to be very quick about it. Durin looking up. And first off, I love the look on his face. I'm loving everything that I'm seeing from this actor. Granted, it's only, you know, one second spots in uh, these short teasers. But I I love everything that I'm seeing of this Durin so far. And what I wanted to mention is you get a brief glimpse of some writing on his, you know, neck piece. Uh, You know, mostly this is a, a head and upper torso shot but you do get a glimpse of the neck piece anyway someone translated it on twitter and it says deathless and so this is durin we talked about this before with his history durin the deathless, deathless. it is oh, said that perfect durin is reincarnated so there have been seven durins that we know about through all the ages and uh, the seventh is supposed to be the last and it is said that they are so similar in likeness that it is actually the same durin reincarnated in, in a new body or perhaps in the same body awakens in the deep or whatever. So, but that's like the, that's the dwarvish mythology that they maintain. And so he's wearing this neck piece deathless. I love that because it's, it's again, attention to detail, even if they don't go into the fact that he is reincarnated or that he's a son, all the, all the background. Right. I think it's really cool. These touches like this, these thoughtful touches. Yeah. And I hope they don't explain the background because that again is kind of, that is one of the things, most important things that I want to see from this series is that they find a way to create the perception of depth. You know, the the textual ruins. We've talked about that before. Just the, this ancient history that is there and it comes up in glimpses, but I don't want them to explain it because that ruins it in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, it ruins yeah. it. And It's for us super fans. It's for the super fans who are going to catch those things. I mean, it'll be enjoyable for everybody, but we will catch those details like you well, caught this. It serves double duty because, it, it, yes, it will be enjoyable for us fans because in a way it's like a wink to us, which, you know, in, in our you know five points for what makes a good adaptation, you know, the best adaptations are going to find a way to do that, to wink to the fans in, in, in a non-obtrusive way. But also, I think it is important to the new viewer, not because of the information it conveys, because they're not going to get it, but because it accomplishes one of the things that Tolkien is so good at accomplishing and just creating the depth of the world, the feeling of a yes. coherent, deep world that has yes. unanswered questions. And so all these people are going to be like, what's this mean? What's this mean? It's so fun. And uh, it's going to be just fun stuff for, for newbies to get into as well. So I right. love that they're doing that. Right. Yes. Okay, another another thing I wanted to stop on, you know, when they're scrolling through the characters we know about, and they're all looking up at the comet. One of the ones that sort of tugged on my heartstrings was we get an image of Bronwyn and, you know, the mortal woman from Tirhurad and Erendir, the Sylvan Elf. 
walking together, you know, we, the camera sees them from behind. They're walking together on, you know, grassy plains or whatever. And they see the meteor going by and we see them sort of grab hands. The type of movement that you would make when you're, you see something that scares you and you cling to your loved one. You grab hold of your loved one for comfort. And um, I love, I love seeing that, you know, it, it's a simple shot. There's nothing to talk about lore wise, but um, I think that, this new romance that they've inserted has been a point of consternation for a lot of people. These are new characters. They're not named anywhere in the actual written lore. Um, it's a mortal and immortal relationship, which we've talked about here. It's like I had some concerns about that. Is it diminishing the importance of those unions elsewhere in the Legendarium? Um, but then I came around. It's like, oh, it's it's really an important theme, so maybe they should find a way to include it. But I just you know got to remind myself that sometimes just the simple relational characteristics of what we're seeing on screen is what's important. And um, it was just sort of a, a nice shot and I, it made me feel good inside. You know, this could be a nice love story. So I think, I, I think we can all calm down a little bit about the insertion of these new characters and their love story. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm personally excited to watch their love story unfold, but there was something very foreboding about this shot where they're, they're looking at the comet and they look um, troubled. You see their faces. It's either before or after they look, they look perturbed by uh, the comet sighting. And I'm wondering if it, if their relationship is a troubled relationship, it obviously has challenges, but if, if, um, if this spells sort of, doom for their relationship oh yeah way, or I, uncertainty I, right. for their relationship in some way everything um, everything was going great and then the meteor came in and mucked it all up uh who kn- yeah i mean who knows but it depends on what the meteor is if you're in the the meteor is sauron coming to you know returning then maybe this but, um, this meteor is their version of the love fern dying uh <laughs> That's a great reference. I, uh, yeah, it's probably an embarrassing reference for me for me to make. How to? <laughs> no, that's a great movie. How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Yeah, it is, is a great movie. It's genuinely a funny movie. Yeah. Um. Anyway, moving moving right along. <laughs> moving right along. Let's speed past Michael making a. Uh, <laughs> no, I love it. I I I think that's a great film personally, but I'm excited to get to this shot. This is just gorgeousness. I. Uh, you want to describe this, and then I'll. Yes, so we are looking at Queen Muriel, Tara Muriel of Numenor. I forget the actress's name. Great actress, though. Um, and she is, it's just her head, upper torso. She's looking upwards and to the left at the sky. We don't know what she's looking at. Behind her is a tree with, I don't know, persimmons or something. I, I'm not a, you know, I don't know, trees. There are, I think, petals floating around her down through the through the air. Yes, and yes. we see a soldier behind her. We see the the symbol of, I think this is confirmed. This is a symbol of Elendil. Elendil. So I know you got some feelings about this. So why don't you? I'll hand it off to you. Well, the big debate here is whether is she looking at the comet. First of all. I'll start off by saying I love seeing her in her regal attire. Tara Muriel, the queen. She's important. Um, just getting that visual of her in her queenly state was pretty cool. Um, but the the big question here is, is she? Is this a scene where they're going off to, they're sailing from Numenor, going to battle to defend Middle-earth or land on Middle-earth? Um, and is she looking at the comet seeing the comet or is she having a vision because she has a vision 
in the lore of of the fall of Numenor, the Numenor sinking. Just that look mm. in her eye and the 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 look in her eye of I'm seeing something foreboding. I'm seeing she looks nervous. She looks anxious. She looks also like she's right. not grounded in. She's not present, like she's almost in her head or something right. like that. So, I mean, she could either be having a vision, she could be looking at the comet, she could be looking back at at, at a foreboding figure. We're not sure, but the look right. on her face is not a good one. It's not a positive look. So I'm really intrigued by this scene. What are we, what are we seeing here? Um, but the petals falling and her marching ceremony, it looks very ceremonious. Yeah makes me think that this could be a really significant scene where they're either going off to war or sailing from Numenor or, you know, something significant is is happening in this scene. Right. And it, it reminds me of the scene where it, uh, in The Return of the King when they're marching off to battle and the petals are falling mm. and people are, are throwing flowers. Um, so it has that exact same feel, uh, right. which makes me think perhaps they're sailing from Numenor, but... What do you think? Did you have did you have takes? Well, I I really like the design. Um, her headpiece is great. It it works for me. I think it's unique. It's very. It's not a typical crown. It's certainly not like a, uh, like an English crown, for example. So it clearly draws on design traditions other than England, which I think is appropriate for Numenor. Um, Tolkien actually said conceived of the Numenorians as being like a little more Egyptian, perhaps. I don't know if this is Egyptian or if it in any way mirrors Egyptian aesthetics, but it certainly isn't English. Um, and I would have been a little bummed if it just looked like, uh, if they use like conventional crowns and like English style. Um, so I'm glad we're getting something a little bit different here. We certainly have got some, if we could compare it to the leaks that we've gotten from fellowship of fans, it was confirmed that yes, she sees visions and that there are some scenes where she's seeing visions. I could totally see this being one of those incidents where, Exactly. And if this is like with flower petals, we don't have anybody else around her. So we don't know whether there's a party, whether it's like a it's a jubilant event, whether it's a melancholy event. We don't really know. Um, but I could see this being a scene where it is jubilant, you know, where you suggested that the Numenorians are going off to war and maybe all the Numenorians are really psyched and pumped about that. But she is troubled. You know, so there's a contrast between what's going on around her and then you know, where everyone's really happy and she's more concerned knowing because she knows like war ain't so great, <laughs> you know, and everyone else is sort of losing their senses as people often do when it comes to war and patriotism and nationalism or whatever. There's this, you know, patriotic Numenorean fervor going on and she's a little more cautious and not so excited about the direction that they're going, you know, having, heading, heading off to war. What she's looking at, I don't know. I would, my hunch is that it's not the comet. I don't know why I think that. I just think it's not the comet. I think it's maybe she's looking at, uh, our fair zone, you know, to the extent they're going to have a troubled relationship. Maybe she looks up and sees him because we know that she goes off to war while he stays behind. So mm -hmm. she could be walking to the ships yeah. and looking back and seeing our fair zone, who's going to be holding down the fort in her absence. And maybe she's a little concerned about that, but this is, we're just getting into like blatant speculation territory. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I, who this knows? The really important thing is this queen looks dope. So, you know, this gets mm -hmm. five That's Yas right. Queens from me. Okay, this is something I am just so juiced to talk about. We're looking now at the image of the forest. Just forests, 
Nothing to see here. What's that? It's a little baby ant. I can't, but what is that cute little thing in the forest? Is it a baby ant? We don't oh, it's know a, if it's a baby oh, ant. No, we do know it's a baby ant. Oh, you need to watch this again. It no, totally... no, no. I know there's bigger. I know oh, okay, there's larger. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's... So in the still image you can't tell, you can see that there's there's an anthropomorphic tree in the middle that's clearly like a baby ant or something. But there are large trees next to it and for some of our listeners who maybe didn't catch it on the first 10 viewings because it is easy to miss um, because it's so quick. But there are two large trees next to this little enting, but they actually move and their kind of limbs come out. They're like clearly fingers and hands. And the enting, you know, it's it's an enting. It's like a child clinging to their mother's leg, you know, and they see something scary because they're looking at the comet. So it's like, oh, the scary thing. And the enting is grabbing its little mama and I just want to die. It's so cute. Well, the, okay, so that is one take. Other takes have been that that is an ent, and then those those two trees are, they are Hjorns. just, they're horns. thank you. They're horns, and that the ent is sort of soothing them. Um, oh, that's interesting. Calming them, right? But this is cool because I, lo- I love that they left more to the imagination. I think that's a really critical filmmaking skill like leave more to the imagination always leave them wanting more Mm -hmm. and i see this and we just get like a a second we don't even really get a lot we don't know their faces but i want more i want to see more i'm excited to see the ends because there's so much that we can do now with cgi and these different effects that i I think the ends are going to look really cool um even though i'm not a huge you know cgi person i think that they're going to look different than they did obviously um back in the day with the lord of the rings um they will inevitably look very different but i think uh i i'm pretty excited to see his interpretation their interpretation of the ends and will we see ant wives you know mm-hmm. maybe if this truly is a little ending maybe we will see some female ends and that's cool too yeah. Well, and we talked about this well, way back in one of our earliest episodes. I mean, I don't know, episode one or two, when we talked about what are some characters or, or type of creatures that we really want to see. And I, I talked about wanting to see Ents because there is a lot of activity, important activity, that affects the Ents in the Second Age. You know, the uh, the Entwives disappear during the Second Age, or at least this is where the Ents lose them. Um, and the idea being that when war sort of passes through Middle-earth, the, the war that Sauron brings on the elves in Eregion and uh, the war that he has with the Numenorians, that the effect of that war is they decimate the lands where the Entwives previously were located. So it's not confirmed whether they're all dead, but it, it's sort of suspected that where they used to have their gardens, it's now just, you know, it's called the Brown Lands. It's been decimated. So um, the ants lose the ant wives, and some people think they might die. So I wonder if it, we might see that depicted and confirmed. Oh, that would be devastating. Yeah, it'd be a real, real bummer. But a big <laughs> part of the lore de- depicted, you know, yeah. going to take that on. That's that's that's. I mean, I th- I wonder I wonder how ants will actually fit into the narrative plot. I mean, because I love I I'm really loving ants. And I want to see them, but also I don't want to see them just to see them, like for no reason. Like there should there should be a reason to have them in there. Um, and I don't want them just jammed in for fan service, even though 
it's serving me primarily because I want to see them. You know, I want it to be narratively fulfilling. Um, but if we just see them as like, you know, briefly at the corners of the screen and the, I'm down with that. I'm fine with that. That's um, cool. Yeah. I'd rather have that than have them jammed in as characters, but then serve no function. So it's like dead screen time narratively just to fulfill my need to see little cute endings. And it, yeah. And again, they'd pull dialogue from the air. And I never think that that works too well. You have to have some sort of foundation. Yeah. So can we briefly, I really want to pause a second and talk about the design of the ends. This is a bit of an axe that I'm going to grind here. So bear with me. <laughs> okay. Um, I never loved the design of the ends in Peter Jackson's version of Lord of the Rings. And it's not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. But it just didn't comport with my headcanon. So it's in that yeah. category of things where it's like, I know it's not wrong, so I can't be mad about it. It's fine. It looks great. Uh, it's all good, except it didn't match what was in my head. So secretly, I hate it. <laughs> you know? Um, but the reason is, in my head, when I read The Two Towers, uh, well, let me back it up. Peter Jackson's tree beard and those ants, they're very, very treeish. They're, they're tree, yeah. They're more they're tree trees, than human, for way sure. Way more, way more tree than human. They're trees with, like, I guess, like their who can their talk. branches are arms, I guess. But they, yeah, they're trees that can talk. So yeah. on the tree to that human was my scale, well. yeah. they're treeish. I always, yeah, okay. So it's oh, you're the first one I've met who feels well, the same way. It, it wasn't a beef, but it was oh, this looks different than I imagined. Because I imagined them yeah. on the scale of man to tree more on. I wanted to see a tree-ish man rather than a man-ish tree, which is what we got in yeah. Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, um, because they're described as tree herders, they're they are more, um, they are more human than in my mind. But that wasn't, yeah, yeah that wasn't the route he went. So, so. Uh, I'm since this will probably be the only opportunity I have to make my case. I'm going to make my case right now. I prepared a few quotes, segments from the uh, two towers. So here we go. Uh, quote, and this is Mary Pippin when they when they meet Treebeard. They found that they were looking at a most extraordinary face. It belonged to a large, manlike, almost troll-like figure, at least fourteen feet high, very sturdy, with a tall head and hardly any neck. And hardly any neck implies that there is a neck rather than just a tree trunk. <laughs> okay. Any anyway, back to the quote. Whether it was clad in stuff like green and gray bark, or whether that was its hide, was difficult to say. At any rate, the arms. At a short distance from the trunk were not wrinkled, but covered with a brown, smooth skin. The large feet had seven toes each. The lower part of the long face was covered with a sweeping gray beard, bushy, almost twiggy at the roots, thin and mossy at the ends. But at the moment, the hobbits noted little but the eyes, blah, blah, blah. Um, So that description, doesn't that sound like it should be a little more mannish to you? Definitely. Uh, Yeah. I, as I said, I, I sort of mentioned, I sort of always imagined just a real earthy, grizzly uh, man of the forest who herded trees. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do we have time for a couple more quotes? <laughs> sure. You prepared them. so. <laughs> okay, okay. Do you want me to pretend, like, argue the other side so that you can, like, come back at me with quotes? Because I can do that. <laughs> no, 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 Michael. No, no. They're clearly <laughs> trees. I like, I like. <laughs> they live in the forest and they, they, they're rooted. They have roots. I don't know if that's. Yeah, play play the straw man for my my tree okay. argument here. <laughs> Just so you can argue. Shut yeah, down. yeah. I, I need someone to argue with. You're also not reading the quotes in. I want you, if you have any quotes, to read them in a tree beard voice. Oh, uh, that's asking too much. That's <laughs> asking right. too. Much. 
That is asking a lot. <laughs> okay, so I, I'll limit my quote reading, but here's here's the next one. And it's about the Entwives specifically. Then when the darkness came in the north, the Entwives crossed the great river and made new gardens and tilled new fields, and we saw them more seldom. After the darkness was overthrown, the land of the Entwives blossomed richly, and their fields were full of corn. Many men learned the crafts of the Entwives and honored them greatly, but we were only a legend to them, a secret in the heart of the forest. Yet here we still are, while all the gardens of the Entwives are wasted. Men call them the Brownlands now. I remember... Okay, this is Treebeard. I remember it was long ago. Yes. In the time. <laughs> this episode will take another hour for me to yeah. recall. <laughs> uh, in the time of the war between Sauron and the men of the sea, desire came over to me to see Fimbrathil again. Very fair she was still in my eyes. When I had last seen her, though little like the fair maiden of old, the ent maiden of old, for the ant wives were bent and browned by their labor, their hair parched by the sun to the hue of ripe corn, and their cheeks like red apples. Okay, that's a very specific description. They have hair that's blonde, the hue of ripe corn, blonde hair, and their cheeks like red apples. They ain't trees. Entwives aren't aren't treeish. They're they're a little more, you know, on the uh, the mannish scale. So I I always I was secretly hoping that we, we would get a different version of the ants. If we were to see ants, it would just be a different formulation. But uh, alas, we are. It looks like the design is very, very similar to the Peter Jackson version that we got. Which, hey, it looks great, but, you know, this is my axe to grind. I, I'm done grinding it now. All right. I mean, yeah. And then and then the average viewer would say, wait, what the heck? That's not an end. Right. Yeah, that's, tr- that's true. Yeah, that's true. People but would be freaking out. I hear out. you. I hear you. I'm with you on that one. But we should. Uh... What, one last thing on the ends I want to point out. So this frame that has the entings and the ants is an identical frame to one that we got in the first teaser. Okay, this is the exact same, except that had no ants. Ants, no ants. No You're okay? right. Wow, good catch. And that you know, very very crafty. Obviously, the ants are CGI inclusions, so they just took out the CGI ants and gave us a a frame, and then they reinserted them which now makes me wonder how many of the frames that we are have seen are missing some cgi component that will change the the what's going on in the frame like for example maybe the shot with the boat going towards what looks like valinor with like white birds maybe those are white swans and they just cgi'd away the neck for the purposes of this teaser (laughs) or you know maybe it's completely different i don't know well it's cool if they give us more and more each time that's what we want Reveal yes. a little more every yeah. time. And we're getting now to the end of this teaser where it says the journey begins and we see a ship. Um, and we know this is Numenor. This is through sort of a bay entering the Numenorian port that was featured in the first teaser. All right. So this is the we know this is Numenor. And this is clearly the same location as this shot at the end of the, the second teaser. Huge stone faces carved in the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to briefly pause on this for two reasons. One, I mean, the Numenorians clearly like carving themselves into things. This is like ridiculous. They have Mount Rushmores everywhere. There's this huge statue of, of Arendil. Um, and I, I mentioned this before. That is sort of like the Numenorians. It's a mannish preoccupation to build big towers and big statues and 
um, the way Tolkien describes the difference in the architectural preferences between Numenorians and other men and the elves is that the elves don't really do that as much, um, but the Numenorians are, have a little bit more of a, uh, a hard-on, shall we say, for, you know, big towers and things that reach the sky. So um, we're definitely seeing that in the way the, uh, the, the design for the Numenorians that we're seeing in the show. I mean, mm-hmm. like, this is ridiculous, these massive faces. Mm-hmm. It, that that are like partially submerged. This is a lot of work to, to carve these faces into the rock walls. Um, so I just wanted to call that out. And also this ship, the design of the ship, very different from the design of the, the Elven ship, Okay, just mm-hmm. in terms of the sails. But it reminds, I saw this on Twitter. Um, so this is, you know, credit where credit's due, although I can't remember the Twitter account, so I guess I'm not fully giving credit. But <laughs> it wasn't my own idea. But someone compared the sails of the ship to the crown Aragorn is wearing when he, during his coronation at the end of huh. Return of the King. I'm trying to see it. He has pulled up both pictures. Yep, yep. So we got, you know, his crown, Aragorn's crown has this sort of device on the brow, the, the center of the, the brow, um, where it's like a feather almost. It's like feathering up. Mm-hmm. And uh, you kind of, the, hmm. the ship sails kind of, yeah similarly shaped maybe we're grasping at straws here but i i liked that visual similarity between the uh the style of gondor that we get at the end of the third age and this version of numenor that we have this there seems to be a continuity of design there yeah this is definitely a, a really rendering shot to end on um i i'm fascinated by the architecture that that large building in the background um, looks interesting to me because it looks a lot like um, Gondor to me, the architecture that you see in Gondor. Um, and again, you know, there's a lot of uh, design elements that just really remind me of Gondor. I'm glad you pointed that out with the ship. Um, but if if this is, I'm wondering if that's the same ship we saw. Oh, and you just pulled it up. Is that the same ship that we see in the at the very beginning in the last teaser? Sailing into Numenor. Yeah, so um, that was that's my speculation. Um, that this is the same ship that we're gonna get a large tracking shot of this same ship, you know, going through this bay. And at the you know, the the start of the first teaser we saw a ship going under the arches into the bay. Um and if if we get a long tracking shot of this ship, that means that this ship is significant, which means it may be a ship uh sailed by a significant character, like perhaps Isildur, who we know is a sailor. Uh, a very active sailor at the time of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have the image up here, but from the first teaser, the, at the top of this archway that the ship is going through is this symbol of the sun, the same on the the shield uh, behind Tarmiriel, and it's the symbol of Elendil, which makes me think that this is um, Andunie, uh, one of the harbors in Andunie, which is where the faithful primarily resided in Numenor, you know, at the end, but also for a long time beforehand. You know, that was like a city and, and a port that was run by the faithful, of whom Elendil was the leader, or Elendil's father, really, but I think they'll probably excise the father from the plot, and Elendil will be the leader. So this will be, I think, Isildur, you know, the son of the leader of the faithful coming home to Andunie. That is my... <gasps> That is my guess. What a wonderful introduction to the series that would be. 
Love that theory. Um, yeah, overall, exciting teaser trailer. I'm ready for more. Yeah. So final thoughts. It's dope. That's yeah. my final thought. It's dope. Same. <laughs> Everything, I, everything I, I've seen I, looks great. Yeah, <laughs> I've enjoyed it a lot. We're going to get more very soon, folks. And we're going to try to be more speedy about our analysis. We don't want to be the last podcast out there to get your analysis so the next time it drops we'll be ready and waiting we know it's coming um yeah. michael's already seen it i have not <laughs> seen it so stay tuned for our thoughts on the next um yeah. hopefully it's an official trailer right there's a distinction between a teaser trailer and a trailer actual trailer. oh no 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 so at the end of this tre- teaser it said new teaser coming july 14th so new teaser it didn't say new trailer it's a new uh, teaser when are we gonna get a trailer one 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 and i can confirm having seen it that it is another one minute it's long teaser, teaser. got it's it a teaser. well so. you know we're gonna have plenty to say about it so this is the teaser to the teaser to the trailer to the show <laughs> <laughs> well as always everybody thank you so much for tuning in i'm so um happy to be back on this yeah journey. welcome to be back i gotta tell you i i missed you uh on the thank pod you. you know we had great thank guests you. you did i fill really in your enjoyed. shoes but um those those shoes are big you got massive feet <laughs> you know massive <laughs> <Hobbit> feet, feet. <laughs> you got massive hobbit feet yeah true hobbit feet. um so but no it's, it's great <laughs> to have you back we can get our get our rhythm going again you know we both both got new babies and uh that makes us more interesting people, right? That's how that works. Exactly. More interesting. Yep, that's one way to put it. <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, if you like what we're doing here, please do support us by liking us, uh, leave a comment, rate us on uh, iTunes. It's still iTunes, Apple Podcasts, I don't know, that platform, Spotify, whatever platform you're on, um, like us, rate us, subscribe, because that's how other people find us. And tell your friend, tell your neighbor, tell your mom, tell your dog, if your dog listens to podcasts. And check out Watch Party Wheel of Time, our sister podcast. They're still doing great work every single week. I am jealous of their consistency. They are crushing it, and they continue to crush it. And Wheel of Time is going to be coming out pretty soon after Lord of the Rings, so there's plenty to listen to. And we will have a, a joint episode with them in the near future, so stay tuned for that. That'll be a lot of fun. In the meantime, thanks for tuning in. Jen, you want to do our outro? It's been a while. It's been a while. Sure thing. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. Hello, welcome to the Grey Havens. We're going to do a Grey Havens today, and I'm starting a new segment. We like to just do all different things for the Grey Havens. If you're just tuning in for the first time, we always have fun little nuggets at the end of our shows, a segment called the Grey Havens, where we, it could be anything under the sun. Um, today, our segment is going to be called, What Are the Watchers Reading? So we are the Watchers. We're Watch Party. Can we, can we wait, before we get to that, do we have to be the Watchers? That's, something's no. creepy about that. Something's creepy. You know, it We've works for you. We've said it before. Can, We've said it before. You've said it. You've said it, and you can get away with it. You can get away with being the watcher. So when it's I'll a guy that, being then. the watcher, that's, you know, no, I'm going to get clapped in irons. You won't. Okay. <laughs> what are we reading? That doesn't sound as <laughs> catchy. Are... It's not as catchy. I'm, I'm keeping it. <laughs> what are the, the people What's who are watching reading? in a totally not creepy way reading? Okay. I gotta put. What I gotta are have my the watch party? What? Okay. What are we reading? What are you reading, Jen? What are you reading? Okay. Well, I'm a fantasy lover. <laughs> Big shocker. 
Um, I have two books to recommend for your summer reading. I really get into the summer reading thing and kind of go crazy on it. So neither of these are strictly fantasy, but I would say the closest thing that they resemble is the fantasy genre. Um, so the first book is called Piranesi, and it's by an author called Susanna Clark. Um, it is absolutely the most unique book I think I've ever read. Um, I'll just read the back quickly. Piranesi's house is no ordinary building. Its rooms are infinite, its corridors endless, its walls lined with thousands upon thousands of statues. Within the labyrinth of halls, an ocean is imprisoned. Waves thunder up, staircases, rooms are flooded in an instant. But Piranesi is not afraid. He understands the tides as he understands the pattern of the labyrinth itself. Um, I'm not going to read the rest, but it's a slow burn. It takes about 80 pages to get into, and then, like, a switch flips, and you're hooked, and you have to know what's happening. Um, but it's 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 certainly um, a great work of fiction. The author is also, um, she has a couple other books out, but she's really open about um, mental health struggles and things like that. So I think that's cool. Uh, yeah, this is a great book for you fantasy lovers out there. Read it. Um, another one I have to recommend is Cersei, this book called Cersei. Hmm. Um, it's a number one New York Times bestseller. It's a retelling of the uh, legend of Cersei. It's a beautiful- From Game of Thrones? No. <laughs> the original <laughs> original Cersei. There's, there's Cersei. another Cersei? She's not the original? Greek, uh, uh, Greek mythology. Um and it's so, it's so good. Um, I was totally absorbed by this book. Again, another slow burn. And then it picks up, you know, around 100 pages in. And you, it's a page turner beyond that. If you can sort of get past, there's sort of a grim opening. And then uh, it's worth the wait is what I'll say. So it's by Madeline Miller. Um, and she is sort of a... She has her BA and in the classics and MA in the classics. So, um, yeah, highly, highly recommend. It does feel like a fantasy novel, even though it's just a, a reimagining of a, a Greek mythology with her unique take on it. So both really great books. Um, if you have book recommendations specifically in the fantasy genre, send them my way. I'm also obviously brushing up on my Tolkien right now. Um, with the Lost Road and other tales. So, I, you know, I don't read exclusively fantasy. I like a lot of different things, but summer, I think, is for fantasy. It's for escapism. So thank you, everybody. Michael, did you have any recommendations, or you want to just... Well, this watcher has a fantasy, and it... Uh... Ah, man, that sounded creepy. <laughs> How do I do this? How do I do this? Uh... You ruined my segment. <laughs> just kidding. Um... No, um, I I haven't re- been reading Jack lately. I mean, I've been reading a lot, but everything is like Tolkien-related. My very limited spare time for reading, it's all um, Tolkien stuff for the pod and, and for the show, which I enjoy, obviously, immensely. Um, in terms of specific things, I'm still working my way through Anything You Can Imagine, um, which is the Ian Nathan book that uh, recounts the making of Peter Jackson's trilogy. And it also gets into the Hobbit trilogy, which I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet. But it's very, very well written. He's an, really a joy to read. Um, and at first I was like, boy, this book is awfully thick for the, the making of. You know, Is he going to be stretching stuff out? And he kind of does stretch it out. He like really dwells in the description of what's going on. But you get absorbed in it pretty well. Like pretty quickly, his writing style is um, very engaging and uh, colorful. 
So I've been enjoying that. Also, the making of the movie, which is a book that came out a long time ago, the making of the movie trilogy, The Lord of the Rings by Brian Sibley. Um, this came out ages ago, but I had never actually written it. But it is a is a picture book, you know. So I'm going back to being six years old and not being able to read, and I'm just looking at pictures. But there are a lot of pictures, and obviously there's a lot of. It's a real book, but just with a lot of pictures from the movie set. Sure, but it, it's... <laughs> it is. That's what they all say. Michael like pictures, <laughs> but uh, that's that's been good. It's been a long time since I've really gotten through. Uh, I guess okay. The last thing that I read that was not Tolkien related. I guess it wasn't that long ago. It was a few months ago, but I had to look it up because I I've now blanked on the name. But it's Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow. Catch and Kill: Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect pre- Predators, which yeah. is all about. So Ronan Farrow is the journalist. Um, son of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, who's now an excellent journalist. I hate him because he's so productive and successful at such a young age. He's younger than I am, <laughs> but he, he uh, uh, he's the one who broke the Harvey Weinstein scandal. And yes. obviously that was a hugely important story. Um, and he broke it, you know, it, it was a newspaper article, it was newspaper journalism. This book is the story of the investigation, the story of trying to get that article published. Which and now is, there's a documentary and a podcast. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's which I, really- Which I watched. He's really getting everything he can out of the story. But it is fascinating. And this story is fascinating in its own right because you see the machinery of Hollywood, you know, all the wheels and levers that Harvey Weinstein was able to pull and the way that it seeped into Ronan Farrow's network. And the struggles that he had bringing this story to light and how everyone was trying to shut him down and, and how he finally was able to get it published and the courage that it took from the, the, the folks that actually ended up publishing it. So it's a really, really good, really good read. Very engaging. I mean, it's almost like it's fiction. It's so, it's so engaging. Uh, you couldn't have written a more uh, engaging story if, if you tried. So I would highly suggest that. Yeah, and if you haven't seen the documentary on on HBO, go ahead and watch that. Um, there's a couple documentaries around um, the Harvey Weinstein scandal that are super important, and in fact, a couple things Ronan Farrow have done uh, has done have been massively important. I think in the Me Too movement and beyond. Yep. So check him out if you're not familiar. And thanks for tuning into our Grey Haven segment. Bum ba da bum. Mm-hmm.